I love opera, right? So I felt that I had sang my three acts of opera, first act, faculty, second act, middle management, third act, the presidency. So this is my encore. There's nothing sweeter than this encore, you know? When you go back to a place that you love, a place that has such history in the imagination, the South Bronx and also means so much to the poorest of the poorest for so many decades. I look back at former presidents, every one of those presidents loved the school. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education. And we have the opportunity to speak with higher ed's most innovative thinkers and doers. I am joined for this episode by the highly distinguished Dominican scholar, author, academic administrator, and two-time college president, Dr. Daisy Coco de Philippis. Recently appointed as president at Hostess Community College in the Bronx, following a remarkably successful 12-year tenure as president of Naugatuck Valley Community College in Waterbury, Connecticut. She is the first person born in the Dominican Republic to serve as president of a college of the City University of New York. She's recognized internationally as a pioneering scholar who has built a reputation for her studies of Dominican women and has received numerous awards and honors for her scholarship. She's authored over 50 books and academic journal articles and published translations of over four dozen poems by Dominican writers. Now, if that were not enough, she's also a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and a good friend and a mentor to many across higher education. We will include a link to Daisy's impressive bio in the show notes for our listeners. But for now, Daisy, it is my privilege to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. I am so very happy to be with you. I know the great company you keep, Melissa. So uh, I am uh, just delighted to have this opportunity to exchange ideas and, uh, and to share a little bit. Well, you have had a remarkably distinguished professional career culminating in your return to Hostess Community College, where you previously served as provost and senior vice president for academic affairs. Can you tell us something about the journey that brought you to this point? And in particular, what are some of the most influential forces that contribute to who you are today and to the professional success that you have enjoyed? Well, you know, let me just begin from the very beginning. I hope it doesn't get too long. But, but there's something about being an islander, half an island in my case, the Dominican Republic. So you sort of feel people think, oh, islands, you're an island, you're isolated. I see islands as places where we receive many visitors from different parts of the world. And my world was very much populated from people from different parts of the world when I was very young, by virtue of my mother remarrying when I was four to an Italian immigrant to the Dominican Republic. So we had tertullius in our house, uh, you know, where there was French and there was Italian. And, and so on. I was speaking Italian by the time I was eight. So that sense of the world, uh, that the world was really wide and that I could fit in it uh, was, was important to me. My grandmother on my mother's side 
make me believe in myself, make me a reader. At that time, there weren't that many books in the public. We were in the bookstores, very inexpensive Mexican and Argentinian editions of Spanish classics and other classics in translation. So she would give me a peso, a peso which at that time was an equivalent of a dollar. Now it's like 48 pesos to $1, but at that time it was one. And I would go and sit on the floor and the hardest thing was to decide because each book was five or 10 cents. So was to decide which ones to read. So what does that mean? I, I understood very young the absolute value of reading. My language skills were strong. So when I came to the United States as an immigrant, I became the kind of students that teachers loved. They didn't have to push me to read. I was very grateful to learn and to learn. Uh, and so all, all of what I do comes out of a real sense of, number one, that people care for one another, whatever, whatever they come from, and that education is the only path. If you're a young immigrant at 13 who didn't want to come, was leaving my grandmother behind, and then walk in a classroom and find all these teachers who don't look like me at the time, who just loved the fact that there was this kid who loved to read and, and would spend hours and hours at the beginning reading Dickens, you know, with a dictionary next to it, and then be able to come to class and participate. Uh, I think it taught me so much in a sense, you know, I wrote one time an article that I said, Dickens took over where my grandmother left off because in Dickens writings, you always find the ability for good to triumph, mm -hmm. that in the end is tough, is hard, but there is a way out of it. And, and that somehow education also helps move things along or, or just simple human kindness. So what I do, why did I decide to come back here, right? I, we were in Negative Valley, 12 years in Negative Valley, where a lot of good things happened. And it was one of those things when I went there, I didn't know anybody other than Elsa Nunez, who had been a CUNYite, and she is the president of Eastern Connecticut State University, wonderful. But I didn't, I didn't know many people, but what I did know was they chose me. They chose me to be their president, right? The fact that there were only 13% or 14% of the student population was uh, Hispanic like me, uh, didn't matter. They chose me. And, 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 and in a sense, I chose them. Mm -hmm. I chose them because when I went there to say, for the same reason that I came here, that I felt that I, I could do something, that I could change something. So when they, somebody nominated me and I was reluctant, I said, what's Waterbury? What's Connecticut? What am I doing there? You know, and so on. And my husband said, Daisy, first of all, they just invited you to an interview. They're not offering <laughs> That's number one. <laughs> number two, you really can say no to an interview if you haven't really visited. So we took a Saturday afternoon and took a ride and visited the campus. And I saw the downtown, the past glory of the, of the place and the poverty and all of this. I'm a mother of three sons and all these boys hanging out sort of lost. And then I began to research and I said, wait a second, they're not at the college. They're not graduating from high school. What, what can I do? You see, maybe I can do something here. And then I went and they passed a whole day of interviews. They liked me, I liked them. 
and, and the chancellor liked me and the board liked me. So it worked out, even though I didn't know anybody, I went there on faith and love. And, uh, and, and I think I came back here because I received the phone call. And I received the phone call of my friend, the former uh, president of Oslo's, David Gomez, who said to me, I am feeling really, I would like to retire. And uh, I spoke to the chancellor and I said, you know, why don't we try to get Daisy back here? And the chancellor whom I knew when we were kids, I was like, you know, I made friends throughout CUNY. I'm forever doing things, Caribbean women with that. The, the gentleman in the central got a grant and they said, Daisy, we need you to do something for the women. So that's how my Caribbean women writers books came out and my conferences, people would say, do you work at Hunter? No, I'm a your college faculty, but I'm my girlfriend, uh, my friend and my girlfriend, she's been my friend for so many years. Sonia Rivera Valdez who's a wonderful Cuban uh, professor and, uh, and writer. The two of us put together those, uh, those conferences calling mostly all of our women friends writers. So it became conversation among women of the Spanish Caribbean. And we had these conferences there. I'm gonna tell you a little secret here. They had um, on the 14th floor where the main office was, the only bathroom they had was for gentlemen. You had to go down to another floor. So we decided while we were hold, holding the conferences that we liberated the men's bathroom and made it, <laughs> made it for both one of us would stand on the door and took over the bathroom. Uh, I think things have changed. I only use it as an example because so many things have changed so much. But basically I'm here because they called me because it was a pandemic, because I felt that I had taken Nagato Valley to a good place. And uh, so when the chancellor came to visit me in Waterbury, we had breakfast. I said, yes, I come. And I said, but I come as an interim. I want them to like me, then you'll do your search. And then we'll say, you know, we'll see what people have to say. And so I came in a pandemic because I felt, and now I'm gonna give you an example that's gonna really, I think maybe it's so, I love opera, right? So I felt that I had sang my three acts of opera, first act, faculty, second act, middle management, third act, the presidency, so this is my encore. There's nothing sweeter than this encore, you know? When you go back to a place with, that you love, a place that has such history in the imagination, the South Bronx and also means so much to the poorest of the poorest for so many decades. I look back at former presidents, every one of those presidents loved the school. And everyone really tried under tough budgets, difficult circumstances, with really populations that have to be helped along in multiple ways. And so I said, this is it, I'll go, you know, I'll go back and I'll try to use everything that I have and make a difference to someone who comes like I did mm -hmm. as a young girl into a different place and finds kindness. So do you know what I mean? I'm such a believer of education and I'm also such a believer in education reaching out and I have also, I am also so grateful because so many people have been so, so, so generous and supportive mm -hmm. of me that I just want to give back. Yeah. It's, well, it's not ambition at this point, you know, it's just absolute empathy and care. Mm -hmm.
that, you know, let's see what I can do here to change some things. Help some more folks find their way, you know? Well, and that's a wonderful segue to the, the next question that I wanted to ask you because it's so obvious from uh, talking with people who know you, reading your, your bio, and then hearing you speak that you are first and foremost an educator. Uh, you were in the classroom as a faculty member for 20 plus years, right? right. 20, 23, 23, I think. You earned your rank as a full professor. You are a renowned mm -hmm. academic. Uh, a Dominican scholar, writer, and a poet. Um, how has your grounding as an educator, and particularly as an educator in the humanities, shaped and informed how you lead? And maybe especially during challenging times, I would imagine that grounding has, has influenced the way you lead. What I found out, you know, when I went to your college, and they were great to me. The women, they were great. I was like the little, the youngest one by far, the one hiring they had done after 15 years of, you know, I was an agent there before they, so, 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 so I used to, everybody, because this was a, that was a poor, mostly African-American community. So every kid who came in thought that they wanted to be an accountant. Now you have over 6,000 students everybody practically wanted to be an accountant. So they would give, they would ask departments to volunteer, you know, because the accounting department didn't have enough faculty to advise. So they send them and I volunteer, I volunteer. I grew our department so much because I volunteer. But part of what I did was to help, help the students find themselves, help the students find themselves. So. Being from the humanities, having a love of poetry, having poetry, you know, I used to go to the park with my grandmother and we used to read poetry to each other. And I raised my boys, raised reading poetry to them and writing poetry to them. My granddaughter is the same. And a lot of my work has been about promoting the work of, especially the women poets that uh, did not get. So I actually convinced many to, to experiment other things like music education, other areas, and to find in some way themselves, not just settle for that. I think that has influenced my, also my definition or redefinition of my role as a college president. So I said to myself, now, if I try to be a white male, how would that work? Would I, would I succeed if I tried to manage like a white male, although I'm surrounded by white males, including my husband for many years. I, I, my, you know what I mean. I have to, and what if I were to try to manage as somebody who has no children, who doesn't understand that, or just because I'm an administrator, doesn't mean I forget my love of poetry and my love of literature and, and, and how do I, don't I have the obligation in some way to see, to show the students and the faculty the fact that even though I never took an education course, never took an accounting course, I have managed more budgets than you can imagine in this world. And I think it was the humanities that had taught me one thing, the liberal arts, the West questions. People will tell you that it's a total tough thing to deal with me. 
because I'm a curious, I was a curious girl. I'm a curious old woman now. And I ask questions and I ask questions and I ask questions until the secret of different budget formulas and different institutions was, was uh, not there. You know what I mean? There was no secret. All you have to do is read and ask, what is this? And you begin to see the patterns and read the patterns. And that is what the humanities teach you. So everywhere that I've been, they get used to, like Nagata Valley, now I do it here. I write a weekly letter. We have a, a weekly bulletin and it always ends with a poem. And their poems, I am particularly crazy about the Sufi poets. So there's a lot of Rumi and Hafiz and other, but uh, you know, the Italian uh, poets, uh, the Dante from Vita Nuova is one of my favorite because that's the, one, the part of him that's really about love and, 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 and more Shakespeare. Uh, but also, of course, all of the, uh, the local poets and the Latinx that they call now and the Caribbean women and men. And, and, and so we send translation, we teach, and it has become, I left a lot of people in Agatha Valley who knew who Pablo Neruda is or was, right? Who knew who Octavio Paz was, who knew Rumi, who knew, uh, you know, uh, Maya Angelou, a lot of Maya Angelou, a lot of, a lot of everything. A lot of, it's, uh, we created a poet circle there that the faculty would take the students to find their favorite poet and write about. And it's an international array of my favorite poems. Every year we could afford three or four or five plaques. We would put them there and it grew and it grew and it grew. So, so the humanities bring also to this a care for others. That doesn't mean people who are not from the humanities cannot do that. But, you know, uh, I am very approachable. The students, the faculty, the staff, the adjuncts used to come in my office in Nagata Valley because we had classroom across and they would teach and they would say, Stacy, there's present this, come, you need to hear this, you know? And I would run across the, 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 the whole way to sit in a class for a few minutes, or I think we're gonna be teaching this and don't you think you wanna come in at eight o'clock in the morning before your day begins and teach this part of the class? And I would say, yes. And it, it became, I wanted them to understand that I have such a love for what they do, that, uh, that I am, was very respectful of them and of our students. And so we cleaned, you know, I began where there was no money here. When I left Ostos and they had the big building was the, the provost building. The, the guys in, in the facilities threw a Thanksgiving dinner. This is after I tortured them about cleaning the building, right? <laughs> the building. And they made a turkey in July to say goodbye to me, July for the 4th of July. And he said, now we don't know what are we going to do with these 22 shades of blue. I used to say, blue in Spanish is heaven and is the sky. We're going to aim for the sky and it's going to be godly. And, and also the color of the intellect. And so different shades of blue uh, uh, and clean. It, all building, clean, painted. Why? Because I understand that you cannot have high ideals. You cannot, as a leader, speak if there isn't a sense of order, a sense, of, especially when you work in poor communities, you want them to see that you respect them, that is organized, that is clean. Osos is extremely clean. Nagato became extremely clean because I used to go into the bathrooms and check 
I have my own bathroom. I used to stop in to check. When my husband visited, I sent him to the mail and bathroom to check and all of that and everything. We hire actually a painter in Connecticut. And all, I said, you, all you have to do is begin painting from here and all the way. I chose the, uh, the outside colors. They chose the faculty, the colors of their offices. And so, that, because we said, what is paint? If you're gonna buy paint, why does everything have to be beige? I found everything beige. Mm. The hallways became learning commons there uh, because we asked the students to paint the walls and we put it all furniture. We sent a lot of furniture to the prisons that was in the court because there was no money. The budget went south when I got there. So doing similarly here, uh, uh, did when I was here, doing some of it again. Uh, it has to be welcoming. The humanities teach you that people matter, that the space matters, that a sense of respect matters, that, uh, and I tell the students, I may not always do what you want, but I'll do what is right for you, but I will listen to you. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. College presidency in normal times can be a challenging job. In these times, it's tenfold, perhaps, um, challenging to say the to say the least. And you're now in your second presidency, so uh, your encore. I like I like to <laughs> think of it that way. <laughs> and so, what what uh, what what drew you originally? into the presidency was there was there a moment where when you were called and you were asked that you you said yes this is something i know i need to do or was it a different kind of drawing okay. in and then 
what inspires you and keeps you going, keeps you positive? Yeah. Okay. Um, it became this way. It did not take me very long to be at your college, especially when I became full-time. My husband used to say, Daisy, you're supposed to put in three hours a week office hours. I said, Nunzio, every time I get to go to put on my coat, somebody else comes in. It's a bottomless pit of need, right? So I became very well acquainted with all the administration very fast uh, because I would go uh, back for the student, the student needs help, whatever. I would really go and also to support a lot of cultural activities that I did all the time. I also, as I told you, I was the one hire my department made after like 15 years. So they all said, oh, Daisy can do this and Daisy can do that. So they nominated me, they pushed me. The first time I attended the, the faculty caucus, which was the, the, the faculty part of the college senate, at York, there were three representatives from my school, from my department in there. And so they said the person who was the secretary had just, of, of, the, of the caucus, had just stepped down any volunteers. So the two women in my department raised their hands and they said, we think Daisy would do a great job. <laughs> my first visit, I'm sitting there and I said, I will try. And it was the best thing because it was a moment where the college was, was rewriting the charter. I advised faculty all the time, join the first years about your classes, organizing yourselves. After that, make friends with somebody outside of your department, join a college-wide committee where you can find friends and have your passion. So I understood with this revision of the charter, at that time there were no computers, so I was typing these revisions of this chatter, five different versions of it, but it passed. Um, and I stayed secretary for several years as I was doing everything. I was writing my books, raising my kids, everything else, right? And then the person who was, had been the head of, the, of that group took a sabbatical. And one of my friends in the caucus says, so Daisy, uh, could you tell us please do you intend to continue as a secretary for the next 10 years? Or do you think, do you think that you learned enough to actually lead this caucus? I tell you, it was a life-changing experience because from, from looking at first organizing, your, first yourself, you gotta finish your dissertation. So you begin broad, you know that, and you get narrower and narrower and narrower until you find that little area where you're gonna be the real expert. So when you teach, you begin teaching, you wanna make sure you get your, your teaching in order, you get alone in the department, you take minutes at the meeting, whatever it is that you're supposed to do as a junior person. So you're a good citizen of the department. And then you begin to go broader. What happens then is that you begin to realize that what you can do is more, although not as personal. It kills me that I don't, I'm not in the classroom every day. If I could, I'd do it, okay? Because there was so much that I learned from my students and, 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 and things that I would tell you, I mean, things that I, that, that I was able to do with some of them because they confided in me and I was able to help them. So they, the president decided to retire 
and they put me on the search committee of a new president, for the new president. And, and I asked for my first sabbatical after 17 years, believe it or not, I was going to take this sabbatical, right? And so the person who was chosen met me on the search committee, came in, so where's Dr. De Filippis? Where's Dr. De Filippis, right? Uh, and she called me at home and she said, she was a woman, it was a woman of color coming in to this environment. She said, would you come? Having never served as department chair, I became associate dean, oh. okay? Associate dean, she hired three women from the faculty to be associate deans in different capacities. So I got all the budgets, the class schedule, supervising the registrar's office, <laughs> and faculty development. I had great fun with that because I made friends then with the folks in the central office, and they, they began to give me more money so I could bring in more students, so I could, uh, you know, so, so, so you see what it is. So you go that way at each step of the way. And this is the part that kills. I, I, I went to Hearst for a number of years on Saturday to talk about, there was never a path. I never said I'm going this way. Uh, people then for, for, the, uh, for the, when she left, the pre I went back to the classroom. I, I said I had enough of managing and I became chair. The department said, you have to do this. You learned that to do this, you do it, Daisy. So I did. And, and, so, and so, um, somebody who had worked with me at York uh, saw that they were having difficulties here uh, at Ostos. And she said, I know just the right person. So she came to have breakfast with me, many breakfasts I've had for jobs, right? And for me to release the CV, which took me like six weeks, because I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. I finally did because people said, that's the one bilingual college in the system. And, 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 and they're really having trouble with middle, you know, with whatever, and so on. So uh, I came to interview with a committee. The chair of the committee called me because he saw that I was faculty, that I had such a faculty background um, that he said, I'm calling you to ask you, please don't step out of the search because the committee is very excited about interviewing you. And I said, okay. Then they said, after my interview, I hadn't even gotten home. The president's chief of staff was calling. She wanted to interview me. I said, I don't have time. I have all my finals. I will come back after finals before the day before Christmas Eve, okay? And she interviewed me and made me an offer right then and there. And so I go home and I tell my kids who are now, all three of them are professors now, but they were grad students, college students then. And they said, what? You, you agreed to do this without consulting as you can see where the family goes. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I look around here, who's the parent? <laughs> I realized that democracy in our house had been such. So you tell me what keeps me going. First of all, I get tremendous love from my family. My boys who are all, prof all professors now in three different states, and they stay really in touch. My two granddaughters, my husband, we are going to have a big, big anniversary this Friday. Many, many, we were kids when we met and we're still together uh, uh, taking care of each other. So I know that when I go home, when I go home, there's somebody waiting for me, mm. you see? 
And there is a, at least one of the boys who posts every, and now with the pandemic, every night, everybody in touch, you know, and so on. So that part, uh, and that's an advice that I give to everyone. Remember that in the end, in the end, you need love. And you need to love somebody. And although we love our students tremendously and everything else, you need somebody there with you to hold your hand if you don't feel well or anything like that, to hold you when you need to be held, to actually tell you, oh, don't pay attention to your supervisor, you're just a jerk, you know, or whatever that may be, okay? Uh, uh, so, so nurture their relationship. Family yeah. matters. Yeah. Friends yeah. matter. People mm -hmm. matter. The students need to learn that too. That's what they mm -hmm. call working, you know, which is you're always going to need, even for a new position, somebody who said, I was her peer, I was her supervisor. I do think that people, that people matter. And so I take the time. And I take the time and, and also I always feel that nothing that anyone can get will take anything from who I am. So be generous. You can't, you know, if you see a younger person or if you see someone else advancing, help them, help them, you know? It will not take anything away from you. And I think for me, you talk about many times they were colleagues who said, I'm going to nominate Daisy for this. For the presidency of Nagata Valley, for sure. For the, for the, for the provost position here at, at Ostos, for sure. Somebody nominated me, you know, uh, and because they have worked with me and so on. So you, 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 you understand also your life is so much better. Isn't it wonderful to just say, I'm going to have dinner with that group, that group from that particular conversation, from that par particular cluster of friends, administrators, poets, writers, uh, you know, neighbors who, you know, share raising kids with me, you know, many things like that. It don't ever become so sidetracked. Mm. Your humanity mm. is lost. Such wise, such wise, wise words. Can I ask you to just kind of look back you're 12 years at Nagatuck, and you did retire as President Emerita, which is a wonderful distinction. It's not one that's often given, um, and it, it is given uh, when it is in recognition of a leader's significant accomplishments. Um, and there is so much that you did accomplish under your leadership there. Do you have uh, a couple of things that are especially meaningful to you as you look back at your time at, at Naugatuck in terms of things that you accomplished? I, I, I think I'll, I'll go now with the intangible first, okay? I think that I was able to bring a culture of care for the students, a culture of care for learning, a culture of care for each other and books and, and, and so on so that the first year, I could tell you that there were some very strategic things that were done. I realized that the college had uh, what they called the Fifth Avenue, which is a fifth floor that connected six of the seven buildings, right? But there was no life to it. And also the library that was in that path of the fifth floor had its entrance on the fourth floor, okay? Um, and and the students with disability had to go further out 
to see a counselor as opposed to having them centralized. So this is where my training as a PhD who wrote a, a dissertation on semiotics came to mind. I said, wait a minute, semiotics is what they call lean management, right? Things are where they're supposed to be for whomever needs it, right? So we began to recreate the fifth floor where the services to the students were organized in a certain way, where the library, but let me tell you, I began with coordinating all of the tutorials and the one very big centralized place, as opposed to in different offices like that. And it was envisioned as a New York loft, you know, and um, this is, and, and, and so that was, that was huge in terms of improving retention and completion. We would track how many times a student came for tutoring, began to point, if you come regularly, not just by the midterms, not just by this, those students were having much more success. The number of completions more than doubled within the first five years. Mm -hmm. So there was this heart and there was this pathway. And as I said to you, this, the faculty suggested, why not have the students in the art program paint the areas? And we put furniture that had been um, uh, refurnished very cheaply in the prisons, different colors, the reds and the purples and whatever. And, 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 and very sturdy furniture. So I'm, I'm very proud of that, but it became part of that. All of a sudden people came like, legislators came to visit and they said to me, Daisy, we don't normally see so many, so many community college students staying, okay? The other problem was that I said, what happens here? Why aren't the students attending? I have poetry readings at night. I have services at night. And, and I said, where are the students? They all have to be by five o'clock by the town green to get on a bus. So I'm sitting on the chamber of commerce and we are beginning to agitate a little bit. You know, that coming from New York was very helpful. Connecticut was really genteel. <laughs> so, so we took the students to testify. Chris Murphy, who was then a congressman was very helpful mm -hmm. in putting together this town hall where the students went and nothing that I could say would have the power, right? So the, uh, the head of the local paper, the Republican American used to pay, said to me by the coffee, what's going on over there? You know, I said, Mr. Pape, what are you doing? What, you know, what is your paper doing? Oh, Daisy, he said, you want to say something? Write an op-ed. Oh, I said, I will. <laughs> So I sent the op-ed, they published it, right? It was to their credit, they published it, they didn't cut anything. And ultimately we made so much noise that evening bus, the students voted themselves. And this is why I say the students have so, they became my ally. So the president of the Student Government Association didn't even live in Waterbury. He used to drive, but he was a veteran. He was just the best. And he got them to agree to do $10, $10 student fee that would go to pay, contribute to the, the bus passes for everybody. Then uh, because of those hearings, the commissioner for transportation called a meeting and we're sitting this, I thought he would have a heart attack. I never made somebody so nervous. So he's at the end of the table, I'm at the other end and he said, why are you bringing this up? 
you know, the town hasn't had even in bus service for about 40, 50 years, whatever it is. And I looked at him and I smiled sweetly. And I said, I forgot his name, um, isn't it wonderful that life evolves and history happens? Imagine me 40 years ago sitting on the back of the bus. <gasps> he got up from the end of his table. He ran to the other day table to grab and hug me. I said, do you understand? Do you understand? what it means for you, somebody who has access to a car, 20% of the households, yeah. the people, the households of Waterbury didn't own a car, mm -hmm. right? So then we, they put in for a federal grant, they got money, our state senator got some state money and he became a pilot. Within three months, the paper was running interviews on things like young mothers who work during the day, being able to take the bus to go to the dollar store, because this was in October or November that we began to go buy gifts for our children. Yeah. And then head of the emergency room in the hospital said, well, you know, we are having now uh, the second and the third shift uh, of workers in the hospital. So they had, and they had, because it was an aging community, have uh, big hospitals there where all my students work, which was great. All right, but 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 they could get to they could get to work in the evening. That was pretty. And then when we got the bus, we got them to do. We realized there were no sidewalks in front of the school. There weren't supposed to be a bus, even though the kids were taking their lives in their hands. So then I organized a march. I went to see the mayor with the senator. And his chief of staff is going to him, no, 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 no. And he was, he's my, he was my neighbor. So I brought him a piece of cake. They said he liked carrot cake. So I was at a diner with somebody for business. And I said, Kathy, what does, what does Nia like? So I said, wrap me up. I put it there. So I said, Nia, you either get a piece of cake or I'm going to throw you out the window. <laughs> but you're going to listen to this. So he said, sit down. So she's sitting there. My provost is there myself. And right next to me, and I'm not looking his way, is his chief of staff. And I'm talking him into, and he said, you know, days, he said, so call me days, 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 uh, big Irish guy, days. Uh, um, you know that that is a state road that as a mayor, I don't control that road to put a sidewalk. I said, I'll tell you what I can do, Neil. I can try to get some funding if you put in your people. So first we decided so that the state would not carry on. We would march. We organized a march. He marched with me. The mayor marched with me. The elected officials marched with me. The family, the students marched with me. And ultimately we got the sidewalk. We got some money from there. He put it together. And then the hospital, St. Mary's Hospital paid for the bus shelter which was like $15,000, whatever it was, okay? And, 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 and so we had a big ribbon cutting and so on. So they, they said, the trustees over there used to say, don't mess with Daisy. She'll march over here with the students. <laughs> well, what a, what, a, what a legacy and what a gift to your students there. So now, Daisy, I know we're coming to almost the end of our time, and yes, I, can't, yes. I can't let this end without asking you one final question. And 
This past June, your community college announced a $15 million gift from the philanthropist, author, activist, Mackenzie Scott. I can't imagine how exciting that must have been. Um, I think that's, that was the largest, right, single gift in the college's history, one of the largest in the history of the City University of New York. So do you have a couple minutes just to, to share how this came about and what are you going to do with $15 million? Well, I'm going to try to be very quick, Melissa, but let me tell you, you can apply for this. They have to identify you. And they identify you in a number of markers. The history of the institution working with poor communities, that's it. She has a group of people who are, you can share their name because when they call you, you don't know that they're calling you from her, right? And uh, they looked at, they had awarded two other CUNY colleges in the past. They were bigger, so they got $30 million each because of the, the enrollment. So basically, they uh, identified you have to have a, a, a conversation. I won't say an interview, but a conversation. It felt sort of like a very friendly interview of my person and, and to hear about my ideas and the work. But I think by the time, they got to uh, reaching out, they already knew. They, and then when, after we talked, they said, well, and then they told me, you can't reveal this. She has to announce it. Do you want this in three installments or one? And I said, of course you want <laughs> I remember the Dominica Merengue, whatever you're going to give, give it to me now. <laughs> so it is, um, she, she says she trusts it's unrestricted because she trusts, they really study the leadership, the history of the college and the leadership. And then they make it all at the discretion and approval of the college president, but the projects to be for students. So this is, and CUNY receives it all because anything over 10,000, the board of uh, trustees receives, and then you put another resolution and they give you back. That's the, that's the process. So we received the money in July, we're planning. I have identified about 20. I call them uh, uh, the advisory core, like the Peace Corps, the advisory core. So we are going to begin sort of this way, two projects to support retention. Then the middle one is about creating an OSOS research center that involves the arts, the social sciences, not just the STEM, education, et cetera. And then the other two are for students who are doing really well, who are going to get those really attractive internships that don't pay because they assume mommy and daddy have the money, but our students right. do it because they need to be paid. So we will pay them the stipend and the transportation for those. And then we're, I'm in the middle of multiple two plus two plus two opportunities with, and I have, have to tell you, I've been blessed that people reach out to me. I can't believe how many people reach out to me since I came back because they knew me before from other parts of my life or whatever. And so we are going to uh, support scholarships that way. So it's Jobs on Campus is another one that's called Arostos Family Matters, which is about mother and daughter, siblings, because we have multiple of those at community colleges in different cohorts, accumulating enough credits the first um, the first year to, to be retained to the following year and, and, and looking at financial aid, what can be given and not given, but also having dinners, celebrations, 
I want to do things like even like I used to do when I used to run the Surrounding Scholars Program etiquette classes. So that take them, take them out to dinner, take them to the museum, give them the tools of culture that they need to be uh, uh, assume full citizenship. And we will put 13 million, because I'm very frugal, 13 million will be put into an endowment that, uh, it, with the, our foundation, but then every year people could collect. But and the, then 2 million to begin, but I have no intention of spending 2 million in one clip. <laughs> so so <laughs> it'll be a few years and see how it goes and get faculty involved and get students involved. So it's about retention, but it's also about having supporting the weakest who come in and also supporting the strongest who are gonna move forward and engaging the faculty in the middle of, the, of it all. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CHALUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking in higher education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.